The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, welcome to Spectrumly Speaking. I'm Becca, your house Aspie, maybe your favorite screensaver, and possibly the only person who could change your light bulb. And I'm joined here by Dr. Kate Cody. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist who practices in New York City. Um, I supervise and train graduate students and postdocs so that we have more clinicians out there who can effectively support this community. And I offer um, evaluation and therapy services to kids through adults with a specialty in adult uh, ASD diagnosis. Um, how, how was your week, Becca? It was a pretty good week. I had lots of stuff on my plate that I'd been working towards, like, all culminating this weekend, <laughs> this past weekend. So mm-hmm. I'm, like, I'm after tired. I don't know how else to describe that. But, you know, when you're worried about something and you're working really hard on something for, like, a solid week and you're all on the adrenaline and focused on it and then it's over and you're done and you have that, like, wave of relief <laughs> and that first night of sleep. So I'm sort of recovering from that whole thing and I'm just, like, Oh, I have low spoons, but in the best way, if that makes any yeah. sense. <laughs> yeah, it's like the crash. Yep. When you, it's like you've been running on adrenaline and it got you through, and then that adrenaline's not there anymore, and you're like, oh, how do I function now? Yep, exactly. How was your week? Um, busy as usual. Um, trying to think of we, I'm, I've kicked off a new training year, and so. I'm excited to have some new students that I'm training who are hungry for, for knowledge. And that's kind of been where things are right now. So it's been, it's fun. It's always fun for me. Um, but it's also like, you know, a learning curve in the beginning, which Mm is, you know, and, and I really, um, I sometimes forget when I have, uh, as I like to refer to them as baby clinicians. Mm -hmm. Um, I forget how, um, anxious they can be in the beginning and when they're first starting until Mm. I start over again and then I'm like oh yeah that's where we're starting from so it's it's a fun time of year oh that's good yeah I'm super excited about our guest today because I actually use her materials as a part of my training curriculum um but today we have Dr. Valerie Gauss joining us In case you don't recall, Dr. Gauss is a psychologist licensed by New York State who has been a practicing psychotherapist for more than 20 years. She specializes in individual psychotherapy for adults of all ages from 18 to 98 with extensive experience serving people with disabilities, autism spectrum disorders, anxiety, depression, trauma, and stress-related problems. She approaches therapy using a cognitive behavioral framework. She is also an author, and the new second edition of her book, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Adults with Autism Spectrum Disorder, comes out November 20th, published by Guilford Press. Welcome back to the show, Val. Thank you very much for inviting me back on the show. I'm excited to be here. We are excited to have you and excited to talk about the second edition of your new book. So let's dive right in. Um, so one of the kind of major changes in the community since your first um, book on CBT for individuals on the spectrum has been the shift in the DSM 
um, in terms of we've eliminated the term Asperger's in the DSM and collapsed um, kind of all of our autism diagnostic presentation into one label of autism spectrum disorder. So how did you address the revision of terminology from the DSM um, in the context of this book revision? Well, it was it was quite a challenge, and I, I spent more time than I would have liked to just figuring out how to manage the clumsy um, terminology that comes out of this, you know, new edition of DSM, because one of the things that was the hardest to address is, you know, people with Asperger's syndrome, which is what my previous book was, you know, entitled, this sort of quick way of thinking about Asperger's syndrome was, it was, you know, in many ways, it was people who ha are on the autism spectrum, but who are verbal and do not have language deficits and who are cognitively functioning in a typical way. And um, so the term Asperger's syndrome was sort of a shortcut way of saying that. So now that that term isn't in DSM-5, you know, as it was in DSM-4, uh, there's no shortcut way of saying that. So, in you know, if you look up autism spectrum disorder in DSM-5, it is, you know, one big umbrella term that the way that people are differentiated from one another in terms of their functioning is by this complicated system of qualifying it. So, you say autism spectrum disorder without language, without comorbid language disorder, without um, cognitive impairments, and also then uh, rating the person's functioning in two different domains of symptom clusters. It's clumsy. And while that might serve researchers very well, because they are defining what they're doing along those dimensions, just in day-to-day -day communication, it's klutzy. So if I were to be communicating with another clinician, let's say, I, and I would say, you know, I, I have this patient, this person has been diagnosed with, and then to fully explain, it would take 26 words. It would be a 26-word phrase for me to exactly specify what that person's diagnosis is in DSM-5, whereas in DSM-4, I could just say it's Asperger's syndrome or Asperger's disorder, to use the exact term. So now I do, I'm doing this second edition, you know, as you know, as I'm writing it, I'm trying to figure out what it should be called because the previous um, first edition was called Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Adult Asperger's Syndrome. Well, now I, how, how am I going to say who this book is about without using 26 words? So that was really the first challenge. And the title that I ended up with I'm not completely satisfied with it because on first glance, it just looks like it's for people of all functioning levels with, with uh, autism spectrum disorder. But it's really not. It's, it's focusing on the population I serve, which is people who are verbal and do not have any intellectual disability. But how do you put that on the cover of the book? So... That was that was one really hard thing to deal with. And then the other thing was uh, being able to explain how on a practical level, any clinician who's 
serving this population, what, what difference is this really going to make to them from day to day? Which really turns out to make almost no difference. Well, if, you're, if you're a psychotherapist and you're serving adults on the spectrum in your practice, this change in terminology affects you almost not at all for a number of reasons. So um, that's, that was a very long-winded way of saying it wasn't easy to deal with the terminology change, given what the first book was entitled and figuring out how to explain to new readers that this is the second edition of that book. And I was forced to change the title. Wow. Well, how did the shift in research terminology related to ASD impact the terminology you selected for your book? Well, that's, that's a good question. Because when I started to dive into the research literature to find out what new things have been published about this population, um, I noticed that starting around 2013 or so, which is when DSM-5 was published, researchers who were researching this population, researchers who would have previously been entitling their papers, you know, you know, the randomized controlled trial of this or that for adults with Asperger's, they stopped using the word Asperger's in, you know, articles that are published in peer-reviewed journals. But the way that researchers um, would describe their population, they would use the proper DSM term, ASD, you know, autism spectrum disorder, but the way they would qualify it to, you know, specifically let readers know that it was about people who have, you know, normal or above IQ and no language impairment, there was not a universal way for researchers to handle that part of it. So researchers all were coming up with their own different shortcut terms to say, this is people with ASD without language or cognitive impairment. And so while, while doing a research um, kind of literature search in you know, uh, the databases, the library databases, what keywords you use in your search, there, there, you had to try different keywords to hone in on this specific population, which is people who would have previously been called, uh, they're just, you know, they're, their uh, diagnosis would have been referred to as Asperger's. So, you know, I found a, a whole variety of ways people would handle that. Like some researchers would call it high IQ autism. Some would call it cognitively able people with ASD. Some people would say um, high functioning ASD. Some people would say normal IQ ASD. So see where I'm going with this? There wasn't a universal way of shortcutting this part of it that says these are people with ASD but who don't have the, you know, comorbid language and intellectual disability. So not being able to use that word has made things klutzy. Well, and it sounds like, you know, given right now, we don't kind of have like a summary word or term or phrase to sort of identify this population. Um, I know from clinical 
reflection that it's impacted the community in that way, but it sounds like it's definitely impacted kind of the direction in terms of how you talked about it in the text as well. Yeah. Um, the researchers are still investigating the same things that they were before, and they're still, you know, doing the same kinds of studies to get to the bottom of, you know, the best ways to treat mental health problems in this population. But it's just the terminology is clumsy right now for them as they try to describe to readers who they were studying, who was in their samples. Right. Um, one of the kind of elements of the revision that you added in is a chapter on mindfulness-based approaches to therapy. Can you talk about the reason for this addition? Yes. Um, you know, of course, the first the first book was about cognitive behavioral therapy for adults on the spectrum, and this is just an updated version of that. But one of the things that is really shifted in the field of cognitive behavioral therapy, and this would be for all types of mental health problems, you know, neurotypical people who have anxiety disorders, mood disorders, um, stress-related disorders. The CBT, for those disorders in general, has moved toward including components in the treatment, um, the treatment packages or the treatment plans that have mindfulness practices and you know the research has shown that you know mindfulness-based practices when added in with all the other traditional cognitive behavioral strategies that have always been um, in those kind of treatment plans that it really helps people who have problems with emotion regulation so the movement in the general mental health field has been to include things that address really effectively emotion regulation problems. Um, now, people who are on the spectrum, it's, it's well documented at this point that people on the spectrum have difficulty with emotion regulation. So it would make sense to use strategies that, that have been shown to work for all people who have emotion regulation problems to offer it to people on the spectrum who have emotion regulation problems. So that was really the link, emotion regulation. And using, you know, the most recent research findings on what strategies help human beings with emotion regulation problems. So it, it really is just to mirror the movement that has taken place in the general CBT literature. Adding it to the book was to really ensure that clinicians serving this population are offering those strategies to their clients just the same way they would to any client with emotion regulation problems. Yes, and as someone who has benefited from mindfulness, I will tell you all that I happen to think it's a super important part of your healing and growing process. So I tend to agree. Thank you for adding it in, Valerie, I appreciate it. What are you hoping clinicians might take away from this revised edition of CBT for ASD? Well, what I'm hoping for is um, that more mental health clinicians who are practicing in either private practice, set, you know, settings, clinic settings, hospital settings, that, you know, CBT clinicians, regardless of their, you know, uh, focus or 
patient population that they'll be more willing to treat people who are on the spectrum, who do show up on their caseloads for a variety of reasons. Um, I think we, you know, we've moved away from treatment being offered to adults only by clinicians who have an autism specialty. So, you know, I think when, when um, treatment for mental health was first being, you know, you know, introduced to the field of developmental disabilities as well as autism, um, you know, these treatment approaches were not, were only offered in specialty settings. So if a person had autism and they became, let's say, depressed, they would likely, you know, seek their treatment in some kind of developmental center, center or a clinic for people with developmental disabilities or an autism clinic. But I think now people are, are more likely to show up anywhere for their mental health treatment. So if somebody is in their 40s and they were diagnosed late in life with autism and they're suffering from depression, it's very likely that they've gone to more of a mainstream mental health setting for their treatment. And what I'm hoping for, just as I was with the first edition, is that a clinician who's really good at CBT, who's really good at treating depression, who may not have ever treated someone with autism, that they could still treat this depressed person, even though this depressed person happens to have autism. And I think with that sort of movement, um, people with autism will have more access to state-of-the-art treatment for their mental health problems. That makes sense. Because uh, that stage, you know, when a person is an adult and they're suffering with a mental health problem, it's very likely that the main thing they're looking for help with is their comorbid mental health symptoms and not for the autism per se. It's more, you know, it's more like a person shows up in a psychotherapist's office because of their depression or their anxiety, not because they're like, okay, I suddenly realized I would like to, you know, have my autism treated. I always say that. I say, I don't go, I don't walk in and say my autism is hurting me. Come fix it. Right. That's not what gets me in the door. That's not why I'm there. I'm there for the top of the iceberg too. <laughs> well, exactly. And I think, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there weren't as many clinicians who were willing to treat someone if they, if they realized the person have, had autism. I think, you know, 15, even 20 years ago, a clinician treating, you know, the general population, somebody shows up on their caseload who has autism, but they're coming in for their depression, the clinician would have been more, more likely to say, oh my goodness, I've never treated anyone with autism before. You need to go and find help somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, and that, and that, with that, the, the consequence of that attitude was that adults with autism weren't accessing the kind of help they needed. And now, and now I think, you know, the good news is I've seen um, much more openness in, you know, centers that consider themselves CBT centers and not autism centers are willing to treat somebody who shows up there for some CBT for their depression, even if the person has autism. It's almost like the autism is part of that person's background and certainly is important just the same way their cultural background might be or their religious background or 
gender or you know other aspects of their history it's important but it's not really on the forefront of why they showed up for help you know that person came in because they're depressed and they want some state-of-the-art cbt treatment for their depression why shouldn't they be offered that that approach if if anyone else you know is able to access it Absolutely correct. And I think what we're starting to do is have a conversation that we kind of want to move on to in the roundtable. So before we move on to that, can we um, please ask you about to let people know how they can get in touch with you, when they can find your book, all of that fun stuff? Okay. Um, well, the best way to find me is through my website, which is drvaleriegauss.com. Pretty straightforward. And, you know, they, you know, there's all kinds of information about my practice, my approach, what services I offer. And then the book that's published by Guilford Press, it's going to be coming out in November, but it is available now for advanced order. And if you order in advance, there is a discount. So if you go to the Guilford Press uh, website, which is, um, I think it's just guilford.com, there you can find information on how to get, you know, an early early bird discount if you order it. Sure, there's an early bird discount on Amazon as well because I might have pre-ordered it there. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to go ahead and move on to the roundtable conversation before the conversation disappears on us? Sure. So, um, you know, I think one of the things that, you know, just hearing Val talk about um, kind of the book revision and the process um, of what she went through, as well as what she's hoping for um, clinicians to kind of take away from the revised book, is that there's a substantial value in terms of turning to what mainstream mental health literature really indicates in terms of how we inform therapeutic interventions for individuals on the spectrum. Mm. Um, and I think I know, you know, historically there's so much that happens in terms of, um, in like a lot of times in like autism specific settings where you're trained so heavily in autism, 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 and not that that's not great. It is. But to the point where we don't always step back and specifically say, well, what are the best practices in treating emotion regulation, mm. intolerance of uncertainty, executive function, whatever it might be, anxiety, depression, et cetera, um, and sort of just step back and be like, well, why, why can't I just use my expertise in autism to sort of say, well, how do we you know, support these specific areas of need and kind of combine the evidence with our, our knowledge about autism. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, our, we, we've had conversations before about how a lot of times the, the autism research doesn't necessarily keep up with what we're doing clinically. And I think part of it is because we can't research autism and all of these specific domains at the pace at which we need to be doing it for mm -hmm. clinic. <laughs> like that's just not a realistic right. expectation. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's really worth having a conversation about, you know, why we 
as a community really need to turn to like what the mainstream mental health literature says so that we can make sure that we're really making informed decisions about how to support individuals on the spectrum who are presenting with the same needs as a neurotypical population and kind of how we should be integrating our those two kind of knowledge bases together. Well, it's a part of inclusivity, really, is what we're, I mean, it's part of that inclusion, inclusion discussion to me, because right. I think if, you know, I, I could constantly be looking inside inside the little tiny autism bubble for all of the supports that I need. But the truth is that I could probably find more variety and I could tailor things to myself just as easily if I look at the mainstream community and kind of what what's going on there. A lot of the self-care and mindfulness stuff that I do isn't autism specific. It is most certainly not. And many of my books are not written for people on the spectrum. They are just written for everybody. And so, um, when we see the success of those practices and that crossover, it's frustrating that um, we're not thinking openly in that way. The more time that we're hearing and, and, and listening to autistic adults speak, the more we're hearing, it's just another way to be human. So if it's just another way to be human, then shouldn't we be getting our needs met in a very similar way? Yeah. I think even for me as a clinician, you know, when I had that kind of like aha moment of, hey, wait a second, what is the what does the rest of the research say? How do I just take this and apply it to this population that I work with? Mm-hmm. Um, it like it was like something clicked and I kind of had that moment where I felt silly. Right. Like I was like, wow, like why? Why hadn't that occurred to me before? And I think it is because when you're in very autism centric clinical settings, you tend to think only in terms of autism and forget that, hey, wait a minute, there's all this other stuff. Right. Um, and, you know, I've seen so much where if I just step back and look at, okay, well, how what's the evidence say in terms of how we support executive functioning? And then how do I incorporate what I know about processing differences in individuals on the spectrum to support executive functioning challenges? by integrating those two pieces together. Right. Um, I, I find that clinically what I get is far better outcomes than if I were to just look at, well, what does it say if I look at the ASD research? Right. Um, the same thing with like intolerance of uncertainty or, you know, so elements of emotion regulation, all of that, which I think, you know, Val even speaks to kind of mindfulness-based approaches, like what, how you're pulling that in. Um, because we know mindfulness-based approaches are highly effective at managing emotion regulation and anxiety and, and mood, all of that. And also, you know, if we're always waiting for the research to come out to support our anecdotal experience, we'll never get anywhere because research takes forever. So the idea of being stuck on just following what the research is telling you and not to be working with your lived experience is so bizarre to me. (laughs) That research that anybody who's saying, oh, the new research is out. Well, that new research is still already like eight years old. Right. That's right. And... I, I think where you look at the research is is important because if you, as Kate was saying, you know, if you're willing to look outside the exact literature that you think you're working in, like what, let's say you're working a lot with people with autism and you only look up, you know, treatment approaches in that literature, 
then you might miss important things that have been out for years on just human beings in general. You know, like the CBT literature for treating depression is 50 years old. Right. So if you only focused on research articles about using CBT for depressed people with autism, you're not going to find that many articles. But if you're willing to say, I would like to learn about CBT for depressed people because my client is a person, then you're going to find really, really long history of well-done studies supporting the use of CBT for depression in adults. Yep. It's like a matter of looking at your client as a human being, a human being who has autism and is also a whole bunch of other things. Right. <laughs> well, and I think it also goes back to, in general, um, regardless of what area of expertise or, you know, we're, or population or whatever we're supporting or working in, it really boils down to individual differences anyway. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because even within this, like, okay, yes, I, I work in, in primarily supporting individuals on the spectrum. And so then, yes, I'm going to be looking at how to combine these kind of different knowledge fields and evidence bases and all of that. But, you know, ultimately what it boils down to is how am I going to modify whatever manualized treatment approach we're using um, or evidence-based treatment approach we're using to meet this person's specific individual needs. Right. Um, because even, you know, even putting autism aside, any, any practitioner of psychotherapy will tell you that even if they read all the research articles, each client that walks in is not, is not an exact match to the profile of the, the subjects that were used in the randomized controlled trial. Right. So testing out that, that method of treating that disorder. So even if you are treating adults with depression and just put autism aside for a moment, it's just, you're just specializing in treating adult depression. You are not going to meet any two clients who are exactly the same as each other. And none of your clients are going to match the, the really narrowly defined samples that were used in the research on, on using CBT for depression. Right. Because any client has a multitude of factors in their lives that are affecting the trajectory of their particular depression. And that's not even with considering autism. Exactly. You know, and, you know, there's been some CBT authors who have written about this for years, like Jacqueline per Persons and some of her colleagues, about how to balance the need to offer your client evidence-based approaches, because that's the ethical thing to do. You want to offer people things that you think are going to work, but balancing that with an individualized assessment of that particular client. So your treatment plan is going to be informed by the research, but tailored to this client and his or her unique, you know, life um, circumstances. Agreed. And I think, I think that the, um, 
I don't know, the fun part for me is that part of that is understanding, okay, well, what are these processing differences in terms of how individuals on the spectrum tend to process information? What are the, you know, emotion regulation differences? What And having like a framework of understanding what those differences might be, but then also having to step back and say, hey, guess what? No two people on the spectrum are alike. So these differences are also going to be different for each individual. That's right. That's right. Um, so, you know, back, you're back to the whole idea of individualized treatment plans. Right. Which you would do for anyone. So then, you know, it just, be, you know, the autism becomes one of the very important characteristics or sets of traits that your clients have, but it isn't any less or more important than other things. Like, does this client have diabetes? Does this person have, um, you know, is this person adopted and has issues around the, the fact that they were adopted? You know, like all of these, or what is this person's religious background? What is this mm -hmm. person's family history? How do people in this family um, manage emotions like all of these things factor in whether someone is on the spectrum or not the, the, mm. the autism the autism diagnosis and the background that comes with that is just one of several other important characteristics that you're looking at when you're putting together your individualized plan person's cultural religious background their gender their, you know, their familiar history, all those things are always considered. And they're, they're also health problems. Yes. You know, if I have two clients who have diabetes and one has autism and one doesn't, they're probably both dealing with similar issues around their diabetes management. Right. But I'm focusing on helping someone with their diabetes management, let's say, helping them, you know, follow their schedule or whatever it might be. When I'm doing that, it, it hardly makes a difference if one person has autism or the, and the other one doesn't, because what I'm doing with them is probably going to look really similar. Right. Well, I could listen to you ladies talk forever. I think that just about wraps it up for us today. So we want to make sure, and if you're looking for Valerie, you can go ahead and find her on ValerieGauss.com. Again, the book is on Guilford Press, and it should be coming out in November, but it is available for pre-order now. And make sure you check out Different Brains at differentbrains.org, as well as check out their Twitter and their Instagram at differentbrains, or you can look for them on Facebook. If you're looking for me, you can find me at www.baccalaurea.com, or you can look for me on LinkedIn and Facebook. And don't forget to look for Sir Walter Underfoot on Instagram at Sir Walter Underfoot. And I can be found at spectrumpsychservices.com or my email, which is drcody at spectrumpsychservices.com. Please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and don't hesitate to send questions to spectrumlyspeaking at gmail.com. And let's keep the conversation going. Spectrumly Speaking is a production of Different Brains. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.org.